you're listening to Immersed. Each episode, we take you deep inside the world of a game. I'm Suzanne Zinsley. And I'm Chris Zinsley. This time, we're tracking the movements of a killer called Mr. Jack. Heads up that we're going to be talking about Jack the Ripper today and everything that he did. If you're with young listeners, be warned. London, September 30th, 1888. The city's Whitechapel district is on edge after a series of murders. So far, at least two of them were committed by a serial killer who came to be known as Jack the Ripper. He got that name because his crimes were particularly gruesome. His victims were all women, they were all prostitutes, and they wouldn't be the last ones targeted. The killer's reign of terror over two months that year continues to fascinate and horrify people to this day. I mean, everybody wants to know what drives a person to do those kinds of things. I mean, it's so foreign to to the average person, the, the, the thought of killing multiple women and butchering them the way he did. Man has always been fascinated with the macabre, you know, so that there's just something about it that intrigues us. That's Dr. Mark Vogel. He's a clinical psychologist and an author, and he's a researcher who gives public talks about Jack the Ripper and the investigation into who the Ripper really was. He's going to be our guide to a key moment in this dark story. It's called The Double Event. The double event begins in the early morning hours of Sunday, September 30th, 1888, on a street that used to be called Burner Street. It's now Henrique's Street. At 40 Burner Street, there was a building, and in it housed the International Working Men's Educational Club, which was basically an organization of Polish and Russian Jews who were socialists. They would get together discuss political ideology, and then spend the rest of the night drinking and singing. And next to the club was a a yard, only 9 to 12 feet wide, known as Dutfield's Yard. And then after that, a series of cottages and other shops. This yard would be the location of the Ripper's next murder. Louis Dimeschutz, a peddler who lived in the cottages nearby, was coming down the cobblestone street with his horse and barrow. And as he pulls into Dutfield's Yard, the horse pulls to the left. It was freaked out by something. Louis Dimeschutz lights a match and looks down, and he sees the body of a woman. Her throat is cut. The blood is still pouring out of her neck. She had just been assaulted. He runs into the club. He alerts them. They all come running out. They grab the police. Turned out to be the body of Liz Stride, a 44-year-old prostitute who was originally from Sweden, who emigrated to England when she was in her early 20s. So the time of death was just before 1 a.m. Today, most researchers believe that the killer was interrupted in this murder. He was unable to carry out his urge to mutilate the body after he had killed. Think about this. You're Jack the Ripper. You have this pathological bloodlust. You start to kill the first victim and you're interrupted. You know, you you cannot control those impulses at that point. There there was no way he was just going to say, oh, well, so much for tonight and go home. This is what many believe led the killer to immediately find another victim. 
30 minutes later in Mitre Square, uh, PC, police constable uh, Watkins, is on his beat. He enters the square. He shines his light in all four corners. Nothing's happening at 1.30. He continues on his way. Around 1.41, 1.42 a.m., PC Harvey, whose beat takes him into Church Passage, but not into the square proper, as that was Watkins' responsibility. He goes to the beginning of the square, doesn't hear or see anything. He backs out via Church Passage and continues on his beat. Two minutes later, at 1.44 a.m., P.C. Watkins comes back into the square. He's completing his circle. He shines his light in the southern corner, and there he finds the body of 46-year-old Catherine Eddowes, her throat slit, on her back, disemboweled like many of the other victims had been. More than any other point during the Ripper's killing spree, the double event shows how close the police came to identifying and capturing the killer and how he narrowly escaped them. I mean, if you think of the narrow window of time when when P.C. Watkins and P.C. Harvey were there, somewhere within that 10, 12-minute gap, the Ripper, like a phantom in the night, swoops in, meets Catherine Eddowes, and kills her, all under the noses of P.C. Watkins, P.C. Harvey, and a retired police officer who was working in one of the buildings on the square as the night watchman. He was just inside the building with the door ajar sweeping up when the murder occurred and never heard anything. Moreover, there were two plainclothes detectives all within a couple blocks of the square at the same time. So there was this miraculous timing. Different researchers see the Ripper in very different ways. For some, he's a wild killer with no rhyme or reason for doing what he did. For Dr. Vogel, the Ripper's movements indicate he was a smart and careful killer. The prevailing theory was he was some type of deranged lunatic. I think he was a cunning killer, charming, articulate, intelligent, knew what he was doing, knew what to say to people, knew how to use guile and cunning to charm potential victims, and certainly could fool a police officer. Some people go further. They suggest that the Ripper might have studied the movements of the police constables, or even known about them firsthand. But that's all speculation. Either way, the Ripper undoubtedly benefited from one thing that there was plenty of in London in 1888. Darkness. All of the murders, um, except uh, Annie Chapman, were committed in total darkness. Annie Chapman was the Ripper's second victim, killed earlier that month. All of the others were committed in the overnight hours when when it was completely dark. Whitechapel was dark. I mean, there certainly there were street lamps uh, at key intersections, but there were plenty of, of dim, dark and dank alleyways and passageways. This idea, hiding in the darkness to avoid being discovered, is one of the main features of the game that we're talking about today, Mr. Jack. In fact, it's such an important part of the game that one of the game's designers told us that it was actually where the game began. Mr. Jack is a co-design with uh, Ludovic Maublanc, and the sparkling idea comes from Ludovic. That's Bruno Cathala. He's one of the designers of Mr. Jack. We spoke with him at the Gen Con 2018 convention in Indianapolis. As Bruno tells the story, he and his co-designer Ludovic were sharing a room at a convention, and Ludovic asked Bruno if he would like to design a game together. And I say, yes, why not? But do you have an idea? 
He answered, yes, I have a nadi, it's uh, light and darkness. And I answer, and, in size, but that's all. It's light and darkness. I would like to design a game where you can make things in the darkness, but don't need the light, etc. And it was just, in fact, his idea was a concept. And then we begin to brainstorm around this concept. To understand how they took the idea of light and dark and turned it into Mr. Jack, you have to know a little bit more about how to play the game. Mr. Jack is a game for two players only. One plays as Jack, one plays as an investigator. At the start of the game, there are suspects all over the board. That map represents the streets and alleys of Whitechapel. Both players get the opportunity to move the suspects using action cards. At the end of each round, every suspect either ends up in the light, which means they're either next to another character on the board, or they're next to a source of light like a street lamp. Or if not, they're in the dark. The investigator uses this process of elimination to narrow down the list of suspects. Meanwhile, to win the game, Jack must escape off the board through one of just a few exit points. But here's the catch. Before they can escape, the suspect that turns out to be Jack has to be in the dark first. Many of the game's core ideas, like light and dark, and the way that players select the action cards, were part of the game's design from very early on. But it took the designers longer to figure out the best way of setting up the board. The early design of the game, the main things we changed is the topology of the board. Originally, the spaces on the board were all squares instead of shaped like hexagons. But it turned out that that didn't create enough options to really bring out the cat and mouse game that they wanted. Yes, maybe it's more easy uh, to draw, it's more easy to, to uh, figure what to do, etc. But there were not enough possibilities and it was uh, necessary to go to hexes on the board. They experimented with different layouts. Where should the streetlights go? Where should the exits be? And this took us some time to have a good distribution, to have uh, games which are always interesting, never mind uh, if it's at the beginning or at the end of a game. The final game was released by a Swiss publisher called Hurricane in 2006. The board they ended up with creates experiences that often feel like hide-and-seek. There are all sorts of moments where the investigator has to guess and second-guess what Jack is up to. It's gonna make it off the board. This is a pro. Oh, wait a minute. No, it's not a problem. Oh, wait, is what? it your turn? It's your turn again. That's Sherry Ferreira. She's playing the investigator and Mr. Jack. And at this moment, she's narrowed down the list of suspects to one last character. All she has to do is keep Jack from escaping. But it's not guaranteed that the action cards that Sherry needs will show up when she needs them. After a few more moves, we pulled her aside to talk. So what happened in the last round is that uh, she removed the police barrier. So she's got, I think, two moves, maybe three moves to get out. So I have to prevent that from happening. How do I do that? I'm not quite sure. It depends on the next four cards that get turned over. I'm hoping one of them is the police officer and I'm hoping I get him because then I can move her character closer to me, wherever I am, away from the escape. Right? At this point in the game, Jack is very close to an exit, 
but he's also very close to several other characters. Just like during the double event, there are people all around Jack. I swear we didn't plan this. And any one of them could potentially lead to his capture. Jen Kohler, who's playing Jack, is not feeling very confident. I'm hoping she screws up so that I can get out, even though I mess up. What do you think your chances are at this point? No. Back at the table, the new round begins. The cards are revealed. The police officer is among them. That's the one Sherry wanted. She gets the characters where she needs them. Jack is surrounded. He's no longer in the dark. So... The investigator makes her move. What I'm going to do is I'm going to move this guy. One, two moves. And I'm going to make an accusation. How do you like me now? She's right! How do you like me now? (laughs) Unlike in real life, this time Jack was caught. Of course, the game Mr. Jack is very different from the real story of Jack the Ripper in a lot of important ways. For one, there's no murders in the game. No victims. Which is strange for a game about a serial killer. But it's also entirely by design. The real story of, of uh, Jack the Ripper is not really implemented in the game because we don't have to make any murder. We just want to escape. It could have been any well-known a uh, robber, for example, it could have been uh, Robin Hood. But one thing the game does capture well is the fact that the killer really could be almost anyone. Every time you open the box to play the game, it's someone new. It could have been anybody. And that's the reason why, game after game, it's not a problem that one day it's uh, that character, one other day it's another character. So as far as the, the mystery uh, stays... It works. (laughs) There's a big reason why Jack the Ripper still fascinates people today. Mark Vogel, our expert on the case, says it's because the crimes have never been solved. Just like Sherry, our investigator and Mr. Jack, Dr. Vogel has traveled London searching for answers. He's walked the streets of Whitechapel for his research, hoping to understand the truth. Maybe he even walked the same path that the killer did that night of the double event. After 130 years, the modern world has taken over the places where the Ripper committed his crimes. There's no trace remaining of most of the locations where he acted out his violent urges. But people's interest in the case has endured. It's extremely unlikely, you know, that this many years, you know, 130 years, you know, since the killings happened, that any hard evidence would surface. It's very, very unlikely. We'll be discussing this for many more years. After the break, we hear more from Bruno Cathala, the unusual way that he and his co-designer got their sequel to Mr. Jack Made. Coming up next.
Castle Panic is one of the best-known franchises in board games, where you and your friends or family work together to fight off hordes of monsters swarming the castle. Now, Fireside Games, the publisher, is making Castle Panic available to even more players. There's my first Castle Panic for even very young players. And there's the Castle Panic Big Box, which has expansions that you can add to the game as you grow more experienced. The couple who runs Fireside Games, Justin and Anne-Marie DeWitt, sometimes do these months-long cross-country road trips to meet people and show them their games. On one of these trips, a father and his three young children walked up to Justin. And they pull out these little pieces of parchment paper that they've all drawn on. They'd drawn like a new monster that they wanted me to put in the game, or one guy had drawn the Goblin King, and the other one had written a little story about Castle Panic, and they wanted to give me these scrolls of the game. And I'm just sitting there trying not to cry. <laughs> these kids are giving me these little treasures that they made. Playing Castle Panic helps make memories that will stay with you, no matter what age you are. Find out more about my first Castle Panic and the Castle Panic Big Box at FiresideGames.com. We need to talk. It's about your discerning palate. We have to talk about your ambulation. We have to talk about the snips. <laughs> <laughs> we Need to Talk is a party game about staging ridiculous interventions for your friends and their nonsensical problems. I just feel like we can't even keep enough cucumbers in the fridge. <laughs> Coming in May 2019 from Smirk and Dagger's new line of emotionally engaging games, Smirk and Laughter. Kurt Covert, the publisher, had this to say. You see the intervened, like, trying desperately to understand, like, what could I possibly be doing wrong that's getting these kind of questions? Am I giving birth all the time? <laughs> and it simulates people really struggling with how are they going to approach talking to you about this ridiculous, stupid stuff. Are you guys upset because I keep looking for Bigfoot? <laughs> Find out more about We Need to Talk at smirkandagger.com. Mr. Jack has become a full-on franchise of games. There was a sequel that imagines Jack the Ripper coming to New York. After that, the game's co-designer, Bruno Cathala, had an idea for a pocket-sized version of the game. The idea came to him, like so many good ideas do for so many people, in the shower. And I don't know why, but suddenly during my shower, I saw the structure of Mr. Jack Pocket. He imagined a grid with suspects in the middle and investigators circling the outside. It was a flash. It was incredible. I was so excited that I stopped my shower. I was wet, and I called uh, Ludovic immediately. And I said, hey, Ludovic, I have an idea. Do you want to make Mr. Jack Pocket? And he said, are you kidding me? <laughs> what are you saying? And I explained him uh, what I saw in that flash. And I go back to, to finish my show. And then it was finished. I go on my computer and I had a mail by Ludovic because he was also excited by the idea. Ludovic had added most of the rest of the game's core concepts. There were roads and walls and the tiles could rotate. Now at this point, all they had were some ideas. But they were both convinced that there was a real game in those ideas. And I immediately uh, called my publisher. I say, hey, Eve. That's Eve Menu from the Swiss publisher Hurricane. We have made Mr. Jack Pocket. You publish it? I say, are you kidding me? <laughs> and I send him the file showing just the project. 
and he saw it he understood immediately that there was speci something specific with it and he said okay I do it so I called back Ludovic and I said hey we have signed the game now we have to do it <laughs> Immersed is produced by Cardboard Edison. Find out more about the show and everything else we do with board game design at CardboardEdison.com. Special thanks to this episode go to Bruno Cathala, Dr. Mark Vogel, Sherry Ferreira, and Jen Kohler. You can find out more about Dr. Mark Vogel and his research on Jack the Ripper and his novels, which include a time travel story about Jack the Ripper at MarkVogel.info. Editing assistance by Eric Booth. Music credits are available in the show notes. Cardboard Edison is supported by our patrons on Patreon. Being one of our patrons is awesome. You know why? You get episodes before they officially release. And you can hear extended interviews with our guests, Bruno Cathala and Mark Vogel. Only by supporting Cardboard Edison at patreon.com slash Cardboard Edison. I'm Suzanne Zinsley. And I'm Chris Zinsley. Join us next time as we get immersed into the world of another board game. Immersed is also sponsored by Haba USA Games, German design and quality, children's and family games that adults enjoy playing. Home of Rhino Hero, Karuba, and Animal Upon Animal. Learn more at HubbaUSA.com. Smirk and Dagger Games, makers of emotionally engaging, immersive, highly thematic games that create a stir. Find out more at SmirkandDagger.com. Van Ryder Games presents Graphic Novel Adventures, a new line of game books where you are the hero. Graphic Novel Adventures, your choices, your adventure, your story. Visit VanRyderGames.com. Formal Ferret Games, publisher of The Network's Bad Medicine, Wordsy, and the upcoming High Rise. Go to FormalFerretGames.com for more. Indie Boards and Cards, the maker of Coup, a dystopian social deduction game of assassination, deception, and elimination. Will you be the last one standing? Find out more at IndieBoardsAndCards.com. And Brotherwise Games, makers of hit games Boss Monster, Unearth, and Call to Adventure. Brotherwise Games brings everyone to the table. Visit brotherwisegames.com.